January 13, 2022. Uh, I believe the Flyers are going to play tonight. This is a bit of a uh, pre-game, early morning show here. They're supposed to play Boston tonight. Um, obviously, the game against Carolina on Tuesday was postponed. I couldn't even tell you who's healthy and who's not off the top of my head without looking it up. The revolving door just seems to be never-ending these days. But uh, do a little preview here of the Boston game. But uh, <clears throat> first, as always, my co-host Anthony is over the phone today. Anthony, how are you doing? A, a long distance show today doing it from my car so uh <laughs> but you know we gotta fucking you know make with what we have to work with right and to your point uh i think rista Linen's out obviously ryan ellis doesn't even exist at this point uh i guess katori is still out i think brassard is still out i saw that they have like pro robin sanheim on the top pairing which is actually probably the best course of action here given you know two right shot defense and out of the lineup but uh yeah, kind of like a motley crew of nonsense they're just throwing to, throwing together to try and put a competitive team on the ice. So, Katuri is out, Broussard is out, Thompson, Patrick Brown is hurt, Ryan Ellis is hurt. Ristolainen doesn't appear to be on the COVID, but I'm pretty sure he is. So, I don't know what's up with that. Who knows when the last time this was updated either. So, they are putting uh, Provar and Sanheim together because they want York and Braun to stay together. And if Ristolainen is out, this could be York's last audition for a full-time roster spot. Do you think he sticks around when everyone is healthy? Um, I think at this point they may do so because I think that they're going to try Sanheim out tonight because they're going to see if he can play competently on the right side up with Provorov. And to be honest, I wouldn't be opposed to it. I think it would be kind of a shame given how well Ristolainen and Sanheim have played together. But at the end of the day, are you going to send York down just so that you could have, you know, the standard Provorov, Braun, Sanheim, Ristolainen, top four uh, together? And this way, you would maybe, I guess, have Yandel play with Rista Linen, so you could beat York with Justin Braun. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a fan of that either. But, uh, I mean, I- I've said it for the last several weeks, and it seems to reign true here that the only way York is going to stay up is if he has Justin Braun to play with. Or, I guess, if Ryan Ellis would ha- was healthy, that would also be an option. But I don't think he has played a game so far other than with Justin Braun. And I stand by the fact that if you're going to keep him up just to play with Keith Yandel, possibly on his offside, you might as well send him down. But I think that, you know, as we talked about on our last show, York being one of the few bright spots on this team over the last, you know, month or so, you really can't justify sending him down at this point. It's, you know, Yandel's staying in the lineup, whether we like it or not, and it seems like no matter who they would put him with, whether it be Sanheim or Risto or York, there doesn't appear to be, like, a good partner for him right now other than Braun, but you need Braun to keep somebody else afloat. So they may just have to bite the bullet and go <laughs> Yandel, Risto, Linen, but oof, man, that sounds uh, potentially ugly at face value. Yeah, I, um, I don't know what else they would have to do, though. Because, you know, I'll throw it to you. You've seen York play more than me down in Lehigh Valley. Do you think trying him on that left side is at all something that you would consider, or on that right side, rather, with a guy like Keith Yandel? No, I don't think it's worth putting him on the right side with Keith Yandel. You know, if you were to put him on the right side, it would need to be for somebody like Provorov and, and just try and 
help carry both of them that way. I just don't think it's worth putting, you know, throwing York on his offside to play with Keith Yandel of all people. You know, Yandel would need to be the one that would need to uh, move in that situation. And another thing I wanted to throw by you is that at this point, everyone wants Keith Yandel of the lineup. And I, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say he's been good. I don't think he's an everyday NHLer at this point. I don't think that much can even be disputed. But as long as Ryan Ellis is out, does he not have to play? Like, even if Cam York is to be in the lineup, who would seemingly take the place of uh, Kevin Connaughton or Nick Sealer, like, do you think Yandel in the lineup is just as bad as Sealer and Connaughton? Like, I, I know everyone wants to know the lineup, and I get that, but, like, is the alternative any better? See, that's my thing through this whole, you know, everybody wants... York to replace Yandel, but then whoever's still on the right side, you got Connaughton or uh, whoever the fuck the other guy is. I can totally blank on his name. Uh, Sealer. Sealer, yeah, Sealer. Connaughton or Sealer. So, like, <laughs> you know, who's the worst of the three there? Does it benefit York to play any more with Sealer or Connaughton than it does Keith Yandel? It doesn't make any sense. So, you know, until Ellis comes back, which, you know, who the fuck knows if that's even going to happen this year, you may as well just move Yandel to the right side and keep York on the left, whether that's, you know, with Braun or, or, or Yandel, who the hell knows. But, you know, uh, unless Ellis shows up and kicks him out and everyone can go back to their normal roles, you may as well just keep York up with somebody because he, again, has been probably their best defenseman through, you know, the short sample size you've been up. Yeah, and he's been playing a lot, too. Like, I think there was a game or two when he was kind of on, like, a de facto first pair. Uh, when Sanheim was out and you had Zamula playing with Rosmus Ristolainen. So, I mean, if they wanted to reconfigure the pairs and have Sanheim play on the right, which, I mean, I think he has some experience doing so. I believe he was playing on the right side with Provrov in 2018-19 after Scott Gordon took over. And I think that they had decent, you know, success together. I think they tried it several times last year when they, well, they, they're still on that desperate quest to find a, a right shot defenseman on that top pair to play with Brogrov. I, I just think the, the, the shame of it all is that you have one pair that's consistently been good in Sanheim and Ristolainen, and now you're kind of forced to break it up because you don't want to throw York to the wolves by playing with a Connaughton or a Sealer or a uh, Keith Yandel. And you don't want to keep trotting out the Provrov-Dustin-Braun top pair that's just been getting carved out each and every night because, you know, I mean, if we're being objective here, that shouldn't be a top pair on any team in the NHL. And we love Justin Braun, and I just think that this is a way for them to keep Cam York in the lineup without absolutely sabotaging him. Yeah, it seems to be the only way... Uh, you know, other than just putting them on the third pair with Yandel and one of them being on their offside. <laughs> that, d that doesn't seem any better. And, you know, it seems like no matter, again, who, uh, who uh, no matter who that third pair ends up being, it's going to be uh, not great regardless at this point. So you may as well just roll with the best they can get. So for you, like, you saw Zamula and York in Lehigh Valley. You saw, obviously, Keith Yandel much more than um, Zamula at the NHL level. Or, I'm sorry, sorry, Cam York. Who would you say has impressed you more so far? I, 
in Lehigh Valley, I thought Zamula was the better of the two. Just far more impressive in his overall game, but I don't think he's NHL ready. Um, he, he's just too goddamn skinny. He needs a little bit more weight, a <laughs> little bit more time to to develop his overall game. Just you know, just, just help clean things up a little bit. You know, but he's doing a lot of little things right, and that's the kind of stuff that gives me hope that in due time he'll be NHL ready. But I mean, Cam York, you know, he was good in Lehigh, but he was just kind of nondescript and. You know, I do think that's that'll be his role in the NHL as well. I don't think you're looking at an Eric Carlson here or some kind of defensive mastermind here. You're looking at just kind of a more competent Travis Sanheim or, or an Ivan Provorov kind, a more of a jack-of-all-trades player. But, I mean, he has stepped up his game tremendously in the few games that he was up in, in the NHL. And I mean, that's kind of what I figured. You know, I always said we'd be able to hang up here. I didn't think he'd be this good at this point. But, I mean, he's clearly proven that, you know, I don't think, unless he, you know, cools off, which is always possible, I don't think he deserves to go back down to the AHL this year. I mean, if he's going to play like this, given the team around him, you may as well just keep giving him minutes. And, you know, I've been kind of adamant that I don't want to rush him, but at this point, would it not set kind of a bad precedent if you were to send him back to the the AHL, especially given how bad so many of the defensemen have been this year, and, like, Yandel and Connaughton and Sealer, even a guy like Ivan Provorov in his, in his specified role. And then you get a guy like York who comes up and is one of the few bright spots on the back end and then you're going to send him down, even if the intentions are good. Like, I think if they were hypothetically to send him down to the AHL, it wouldn't be for, like, oh, you know, he wasn't good enough. I think it would be, like, we don't want him to play with a bad partner, possibly on his offside, or we don't want him to be around this fucking mess. But to my knowledge, Lehigh Valley is just as big as a fucking mess right now. So, I mean, I think at this point you kind of have to. Your hands are tied, and, you know, as we look to the forwards here, it's kind of telling that you have a guy like York who comes up and is instantly making a positive impact, and you're still kind of waiting for a guy like, let's say, like Morgan Frost to do something like that. And, you know, I had a long thread a few nights ago with uh, Bill Meltzer about it. And, you know, I, I think the, the, the thing here is with Frost is that, you know, people like Meltzer will get angry when people are disappointed with him. And while I kind of agree... Because if you thought Claude Giroux Jr. was Morgan Frost, then that's your own fault. You know, for guys like you or me, like we've said, like this is exactly where uh, we thought Morgan Frost would be in his development because we were more realistic. You watched him in Lehigh Valley. But at the same time, you can't be, you know, offended that people are extremely disappointed that a guy who was touted as the best forward prospect in the system for two, three years, has come up and just been, you know, another middle six forward who isn't anything that special. Yeah, and to wrap up the York thing real quick, you may, I mean, he's earned his spot. If he's going to play like this, he could probably be their number one defenseman if they really wanted. Like, he's beating everybody in terms of quality of play thus far. So, you know, sending him down, even if it is for just to continue his development, like, I do think that sets a bad precedent. You know, especially given how shitty this team is. If they were firing at all cylinders, like, fine, you can go back down and develop. But right now, I mean, if he's going to come up and earn it, you may as well let him play. Um, so I, I would assume, especially since Ellis isn't here, you know, it's not like there's anybody else knocking at the door to come and try and take a role from him. So I assume that one of, uh, you know, Sealer or, or Connaughton will be sent down um, to, to, to accommodate the role. I would hope anyway. I guess we'll wait and see on that one. But, you know, transferring over to Frost, like, he seems to be, he's playing as expected. 
in terms of what I expected from him watching him in Lehigh, but like he seems to be getting like the Oscar Lindblom treatment right now. Well, he'll get a game or two in the top six and he'll look fine, but not great. And then he'll immediately get put back down into the bottom six and just kind of exist. And that's not good. Like, I, I think the original point Meltzer was trying to make at the very, very beginning of that thread was like, you know, you got to be consistent with how you handle this guy. You know, you, you, you if, yeah, you have to accept the bumps in the road and, and kind of let him develop as an own thing. And again, given how bad the team has been, who the hell cares if you throw him in the top six, you know, and kind of let him develop his game. But like, the reason the expectations for him are so high to begin with is because everyone told me for fucking years that he was going to be Claude Drew Jr. You know, and he's clearly not Claude Drew Jr. He's not 34-year-old Claude Drew. You know, he's nothing close to this guy. So... I, I, that was a really, <laughs> really dumb thread from somebody who gets paid by the team to fucking coddle these players. But uh, I don't know. Like, he's... I am disappointed in Morgan Frost overall because I, I wasn't even expecting more offensively. But, you know, given how ravaged the team has been as well, you can't just plop him with Drew and Atkins in and tell him to be great right now because of all the injuries and, and COVID and whatnot. So you are in a weird spot, but, you know, he really does seem to be following the Oscar Lindblom path of, like, you're going to be in the bottom six unless we, you know, promote you one night and then send you back down, which probably is not great for his overall development. Well, the, the Morgan Frost in a vacuum. I don't think there's anything wrong with where he's at. I think he's. I think he scored at like a thirty point pace over an eighty-two game season. I have no doubt that eventually. And I do think the key to this is making him a winger full time. Yeah. Like once they have Katori back, and I guess Giroux is permanently a center now, which is probably the best course of action. I could see them having Morgan Frost. Let's say on Giroux's left wing with Cam Atkinson. And then you have, you know, Farabee, Katori, and Konechny, and that's your top six. But he, I think he really needs to be a winger to get to that ceiling. And that's okay with him as a player in a vacuum, which I agreed with Meltzer on. That, like, I don't think he's a bust. I don't think he's crap. He's a useful NHL player. But when you look at it on more of a macro scale, and you look at the expectations that were here for this guy – it's okay to be disappointed. And that's where Meltzer kind of lost me a bit because then he went on this tangent about trying to defend the organization's capability of drafting and developing players the last, you know, five, six years. And look, I get it. Meltzer's on the team payroll. I can guarantee that if you count him in a candid moment with a couple drinks in him, you know, in <laughs> private off the record, he would echo a lot of what we were saying. So I don't fault Meltzer. But at the same time, it's just like you're kind of making a fool of yourself to try and say that their drafting and developing hasn't been poor when you compare it to how much they have emphasized that. And as we said numerous times, I think, you know, Chuck Fletcher and Brent Flair have done a lot better in that regard than the Ron Hexel and Chris Pryor regime. And we could get to that in a minute. But. You know, it's going to take a while for the Fletchers and uh, the Fletcher and Flair's picks, rather, to make an impact in the NHL. We're already seeing a guy like Cam York, who, if we remember correctly, people had a goddamn fucking meltdown when they drafted Cam mm-hmm. York. But I think that guys that Fletcher and Flair have drafted are already showing signs, as opposed to guys who Hexel drafted five, six, seven years ago are still battling their way to be everyday NHLers. Now, to be fair, I do think that Morgan Frost is an everyday NHLer, but he was talked up as, you know, the future first-line center or at bare minimum top six center who was going to come in and be, you know, a point-per-game player. 
And again, if you're just a regular fan reading, you know, writer X or beat reporter X, I think that you kind of got caught up in that. And the other thing is, is that for a team and an organization that is so weak down the middle, he was a guy who was supposed to be, you know, the Lord and Savior to that, the successor to Claude Giroux. And now you get him up here, and he's a passable, like, fine 3C, I would suppose. But for him to be, in my opinion, hit his ceiling, which I believe would probably be like a 50, 55-point guy, which is very good and a successful first-round pick, but he probably has to be a winger to get there. And do they need another 50, 55-point winger on this team? They have Travis Konechny for that. They have Joel Farabee for that. You know, maybe not this year, but JVR kind of fits that bill as well. Oscar Lindblom, again, maybe not this year, but kind of falls in that bracket as well. And it just it's another player in a long list of, you know, decent middle six wingers. And at this point, it's just redundant. And I think that Frost is kind of like a victim of circumstance at this point. Yeah, I would agree. He He's just some nondescript dude. You know, his play away from the puck is, you know, average on a good night. And, you know, he does have some really smooth hands. When you put him with the Giroux and Atkinsons of the world, he can look incredibly competent. You know, that's where he's going to flourish the most is with, you know, high-caliber offensive players because the, his playmaking skills are so good. But, you know, when he's just kind of lingering in the middle six and exists and he's not an overly great center, you know, he's going to survive in the wings. And as you mentioned, every last one of their wingers right now is just an underwhelming group of shitheads. <laughs> you know, the same nondescript person. Uh, it just doesn't do them any favors to to have another one of those guys in the lineup. And, you know, a victim of circumstance, I think, is a good way to put it. Because he was the last guy. Yeah. He was the last hope. Because Joel Farabee was Hextel's last pick, and he jumped into the NHL you know, what was it, a year and a half after he was drafted, drafted in 2018, and he was pretty much a regular by the middle of 1920. Yeah. Or at least was in and out of the lineup. So, and to be honest, you, you can make the case that aside from Carter Hart, that was Hextel's best pick. And I guess as we transition into Hextel here, as, you know, Bob Clark made, you know, shocked the hockey world with his comments. They talked about it on TSN Radio in Toronto, for fuck's sake. Wow. Um, I think... You know, well, first of all, I'll let you give your opinion on it, on the whole thing. Well, <laughs> you know, none of the stuff that was said was particularly new information. Um, you know, we've known about the questions drafting Patrick for a long time. We knew they were in on Ryan O'Reilly and backed out. We knew the Shen trade came out of left field. Like, a lot of the stuff he said was not new, but... It was never overly confirmed before this. It came from some beat reporters, you know, and I trust the beat reporters that said that stuff, but, you know, having somebody like Clark back it up is is certainly damning. And, you know, I don't know. The Hextall era was a complete failure. There are still people that desperately hang on to the fact that he was some, you know, god, but he wasn't. He was a fucking con man, you know, and the Flyers are paying for his incompetence now with the shitty roster. But... I don't know. I, I I was not Hextall's biggest fan as GM for a long time of his tenure. I He lost me real early in the process. I believe it was with the, I don't know when that would have been, the summer of 16 when 
uh, Oshie and Kessel got traded for fucking peanuts when you could have salvaged your main roster and he didn't do that. You know, that's that was the, the original time when you lost me. But it was just, uh, I don't know. It, it's very concerning that the organization is in this state. And, you know, a lot of the people that were defending Hextall the hardest through this whole thing, well, we got to focus on the current roster. You know, we got to focus on this regime. And it's like... That's fine and all, and I agree, but, you know, a lot of the roots of Chuck Fletcher's problems right now stem from a roster filled with Hextall guys that are underwhelming, you know, that aren't doing their jobs, that aren't very good at their jobs. So, I don't know. I, I, <laughs> the whole thing was uh, definitely crazy. You know, the, the Hextall defenders were even crazier, and it was uh, definitely an entertaining day on Twitter. But from a pure information standpoint, I don't think a lot of this stuff was anything overly new. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, we've heard, you know, guys like Anthony Sanfilippo and his colleague Russ Joy from Crossing Broad, you know, echo this for, I feel like it's been being said for like a year and a half. And, you know, people questioned it. And, like, but to your point, when a guy like Bobby Clark, arguably, you know, still the face of the franchise, the most, you know, iconic player to ever suit up for the Orange and Black, many believe to be the best player of all time. And if we look at it objectively, that's probably true. To say that, you know, in his own words, it hits differently. And, you know what, there, there's the possibility, and people float it out there, that he's, you know, just throwing grenades at, at Fletcher, trying uh, I mean, at Hexall, trying to deflect, you know, blame off the current regime and Holmgren and himself, and he still is on the Flyers' payroll. Now Hexall is with the arch-rival Pittsburgh Penguins, and you know what? There's truth. I mean, not that there's truth to that, but that's a possibility. Like, for all we know, it could be true. And But the thing is, is that until another guy of that stature would come out and contest what Clark says, we can't really deny it. You know what I mean? Like, unless Hextel comes out or Chris Pryor comes out and absolutely calls fake news and says that's not true, who are we to question Bobby Clark's, you know, insight on it? He's there. He works at with the team, specifically with drafts. He's at every single draft. So while I'm not saying it may not be true... We can't actually say, we have no say in it. You and I always talk about we're not in the room, we're not in the front office. We don't know what actually goes on. So when a guy who is in the front office and has been in the front office for 40 fucking years says it, we really have no grounds to stand on to question him. And the other part of this is is that Hexel doesn't get the benefit of the doubt from me. If Hexel had done yeah. everything yeah. else right then maybe I'd be like, eh, you know, you know, everyone has their misses. It's not the end of the world. Like, maybe you guys are just fucking trying to save face here. But when you look at his entire regime, why does Hextall get the benefit of the doubt? And that's where I'm at. Like, if Hextall had been this draft genius that many people oh so desperately wanted him to be, then maybe I'll be like, you know what, Clark, you're probably just a bit bitter, but everyone has, you know, swings and misses from time to time. But everyone's complaining now that, you know, oh, Ivan Provorov is not a number one defenseman. Well, who drafted him and rushed him into that role? Yeah. Ron Hextall. Oh, Travis Konechny isn't a top-line offensive catalyst. Well, who drafted him and rushed him into that role? You know, oh, Travis Sanheim is just, you know, all these players, I don't have to run down the list, <laughs> but all these guys who aren't good enough 
were drafted by Ron Hextall. And, you know, look how many misses he's had. You know, guys like Pascal LaBerge, Germont, Rubsoff, uh, Jay O'Brien. Like, these are draft picks that are not, like Clark said, that are never going to play in the NHL. And then, you know, drafting guys like Connor Bonneman and Carson Torinsky in later rounds, like, and I'm not saying you have to hit on every third or fourth round or fifth round pick, but it seems like he hit on none. He either hit on first round picks, the some second round picks, which was you know, Carter Hart and I guess Nick Abe Kubel and Oscar Lindblom in his first draft year. But aside from that, he didn't find anybody in the later rounds. He didn't draft anyone in the later rounds. Like even a guy like Fletcher and Brent Flair, like obviously still early on and there's still a lot of runway left. But even a guy like Elliot Denoyer, fifth round pick, and now he's starting to at least look like he has some form of an NHL future. Tech still didn't do that. So while I'm not going to completely discount the possibility that it may be Clark, you know, just being bitter and trying to throw shade and um, kick stones at uh, Hextel, for me, Hextel doesn't get the benefit of the doubt. No, exactly. And, you know, I, I've heard the Clark is bitter theory before, but I don't know. What the hell good does it do rehashing somebody with something that isn't even the fucking organization anymore if you're Bobby Clark? You know, everyone, oh, you're defending the guy who's still on the payroll of the team. And it's like, yeah, I, Clark's here. Clark gives a shit. Ron Hextall's gone. He's ruining some other franchise now. You know, I just, I don't, I don't understand why there was so much vitriol against Hextall, uh, against Bobby Clark, rather, for that interview, when I don't think anything he said was off base. The people that had the biggest fucking problem with it were the ones who built up the Hextall draft pick so high. You know, it spent the last years telling me how fucking great, you know, is gonna be, you know? Just, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I, I just, I don't understand. I think Clark, you know, a lot of that stuff is probably true. You know, I don't doubt his authenticity through any of that. And, you know, going back to the difference of the draft classes, I mean, I've always felt like Fletcher's drafting has been more promising. And again, it's a lot, it's way too early to tell for most of this stuff. But, you know, he seems to be picking for quality over quantity, whereas Hextall was picking two-way guys, but he was picking, you know, ten of them a draft, you know, so I, I do think at the end of the day, we'll look back in 15 years and say, yes, Ron Hextall's drafting was a complete failure, whereas Fletcher seems to be more towards the league average right now. Yeah, and it's not me saying that I think that Hextall, or that Fletcher's like this draft genius, I just think that he's more competent, yeah. like you said, he's average. As Hextall, and again, you also have to you also have to take into consideration how much emphasis he put on draft and developing. This is all he wanted to do yeah. for four yeah. and a half years. That's all he did. All he did was draft trade for draft picks. Like in 2016, he had four picks, I think, inside the top 55. And you hit on Carter Hart, and okay, Wade Allison. I guess you kind of get like an incomplete on that. Because, you know, when he has been healthy, he looks real good, but he just can't stay healthy. But the other two guys, and I'm not, like, everyone says, oh, you know, Alex Dabrinkit. Fuck Alex Dabrinkit. Give me a Nate Thompson. Give me a Sam Steele. Give me a Dylan Dutbe. Give me a Max Jones. Just give me an NHL fucking player. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yep. Like, like, I'm not asking, like, oh, you know, he, he missed Alex Dabrinkit. Like, okay, that happened. It's fine. Like, so did a bunch of other teams, sometimes twice. I'm not going to fault him for that. 
but when you're missing so often, like you can't completely botch two picks in that draft. And those were the two first of the top four, I think. I think, well, Rubsov was like 21st or 22nd 22nd. And LaBerge was, what, 35th or 36. something? 36. Yeah. 36. And then Harden and Allison went after. So, again, you, you at least have to hit on some NHLers. And even a guy like Travis Konecki. Like, again, like he's a good NHL player, and that's a successful pick. But, like, you know, a guy like Sebastian Ajo goes after him. And that's the kind of player where it's just like, okay, you're drafting, like, a solid winger, but, like, should you have not been drafting for centermen? Like, there there was no... For me with Hexel, it was like there was no, like, long-term vision with his drafting. He would draft based on what the players were doing in the moment. Yeah. That, at least that was my opinion on it. And he didn't really have a clear plan, which is weird for me to say. He just kept drafting, you know, good depth players. And like you said, like, Carson Twerinsky, M- Mikhail Vorobiev, David Kasha... Um, Connor Bunneman, like all, like I think there was a guy like uh, even Lazinski. To be on, where did Lazinski go? Like the fifth round or something? Sixth round, like, one sixty nine overall in twenty sixteen. In what? And that's another guy. Like everyone tried to blow smoke up his ass, but I'm just like, okay, well, what's his ceiling? Oh, you know, good fourth line center. Okay, <laughs> but you can go find that all, like anywhere. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I don't, I've never understood the drafting to round out your depth thing. Now, look, that's not to say that you should have none of those players, because it does help sometimes for a guy to come up like an Albay Kubel, and I do think that in the right situation, as we're seeing in Colorado, he's a, you know, he's a competent, solid, fourth-line guy. But look at a, a team like the Tampa Bay Lightning. In their bottom six last year, I think they drafted one guy. Matthew Joseph. Oh, yeah, and Tyler Johnson. But he was there just because, you know, he was being played on the bottom line because of his fucking salary. But their entire third line they signed or traded for, Patrick Maroon, the same thing. You know, you look at, like, the Washington Capitals, like, who they went out and got, like, to be on their fourth line. Like, even now, like, Garnet Hathaway and Lars Eller, all these guys, like, Pittsburgh. Like, who the fuck have they drafted aside from, like, Jake Gensel in the last 10 years? Like, like I, for me, it's just like you don't draft to round out your bottom six. You draft for stars, and Hextel just didn't do that. Yeah, you you failed on every one of your first and second round picks, and then your guys later in the draft, uh, later in the draft that you could even put in as your bottom six guys are just worthless. You know, the even the guys that have had the most success, you know, Connor Bunneman, you know, ooh, you know, who cares? Your bottom six are guys that you can find for a dime a dozen every year on the free agent list. You know, they're not got you don't draft your bottom six, you draft stars. Like this shouldn't be complicated, but for some reason it was incredibly complicated for Extall to figure that out. And this was the guy that was supposed to be a draft genius and figuring all this out and he was gonna save the day and all this and that, and you walk away and you've got Carter Hart and, like, Ivan Provorov. That's it. The only two players that are even worth a shit. Even Konechny and Sanheim are, like, league average for the positions that they play. If I pull up the free agent list right now, how many people do you think have three 24-goal seasons there? My guess is most of them, okay? Like, it's just none of these guys are fucking stars, and he was here for one, two, three, four, five drafts. Maybe you want to argue Farabee. I think he's still a work in progress. He'll be very good in his own right. But, like, beyond that, like, holy shit, just swings and misses fucking everywhere. 
Yeah, and yeah, look, I don't want to harp on this, and it is, you know, it is to a point now where it falls on Chuck Fletcher to fix it. And again, like, you know, like you have the conversation a lot. I, you know, I've had it too, where like people just hate Chuck Fletcher, and you know, I don't trust them to do a rebuild. And look, I don't think Chuck Fletcher is like an elite GM. Maybe not even above average GM, but I think he's just an average, competent general manager who's not nearly as bad as people make him out to be. Like, you know, we've said it several times on Twitter the last few days, respectively, that, like, look at what's going on in Minnesota, and his fingerprints are all over that team. Like, yeah. come on now. So, but do I think, like, he's Steve Eiserman? Of course not. But I still believe on some level he hasn't been able to completely do what he's wanted to do. And not in the sense that, like, Dave Scott is, like, calling people and signing free agents and this and that, but he's saying we have to make the playoffs every year no matter what. That's our goal all the time. We're not, like, taking, like, a step back to take three steps forward. We're not doing that. So with that being the case and the roster that he inherited – Aside from, you know, a few mistakes along the way, like the 2020 offseason where he only added Gustafson or the, the 2020 deadline where, in my opinion, he really blew it, like, you know, cheaping out and just getting Thompson and Grant. I don't know what else he could have done to try and right this shit. And we've said that all of his moves in a vacuum this summer, even as, like aside from Yandel, but even at that, it's a one-year $900,000 contract. I think I've liked, you know, like, the Kevin Hayes thing, the contracts aren't great, but, you know, they still need centermen, so that deal still kind of looks all right. The Niskan move was good. The Braun move was good. Ryan Ellis kind of incomplete, but given what he gave up, you know, it's still fine. Uh, you know, these are moves that were good moves and did, I guess, improve the team. But the problem is, is that with them having the mandate to stay competitive each and every year, no matter what, you can't really do what is necessary and possibly risk taking a step back. Again, I could be wrong. It's just my read on the situation. Yeah, and, you know, one of the things I've been talking about, uh, both in the writing and on the show over the last few days, is some of the down moments that Fletcher had, and, you know, talk about Eric Gustafson and stuff, like, who's to say that was his call anyway? You know, that was the summer of a middle of a fucking pandemic. Who says Dave Scott didn't say, hey, don't spend any of my money this year? You know, you're not allowed to. You know, what? I guess we're going to have to wait for, you know, five, six years down the line for somebody else to go on a podcast and tell us what the hell's going on with this current regime. But uh, for the time being, like, you know, I, I think there is enough benefit of the doubt there for Fletcher. Like, to have back-to-back summers the way he did, where you look at the, the 2020 summer, where it was just Eric Gustafson in the 2021 summer, where he flipped half the fucking team, you know, which one is more believable in what he wanted to do? And I do believe that 2021, it was more of his call versus, you know, the Eric Gustafson summer, which was probably the organization trying to cheap out and save money because there were no asses in seats at that point making any, you know, cash flow. Yeah, and they were just coming off of a year where, you know, they were the number one seed in the round robin, and they went to the second round of the playoffs. They were getting Lindblom and Patrick back. Exactly. There was, you know, I never bought into it. You never bought into it. But there was people projecting them to win the Stanley Cup, for fuck's sake. Like I told you, I remember like a week before the 2021 season started, you had people arguing about who would lift the Cup second after Giroud. (laughs) Like, I was just like, this is a fuck, like... To my, I will never, ever, ever get over that. I'm just like, these people are nuts. They're absolutely insane. But, so there was actually, there's 
actually like a solid reason to believe that that's what happened because everyone still thought that Phil Myers was like this like budding Norris Trophy contender, you know, coming up. Everyone still thought that, you know, Nolan Patrick was going to come in and be a 2C. Everyone still thought that Oscar Lindblom was a 35-goal scorer. You know, you were coming off of the year where Ivan Provorov was probably like a top-10 defenseman in the NHL. Like, could he translate that? Travis Konechny had scored 63 points in 69 games or whatever the fuck it was, 61 and 69. So... I could see the rationale that ownership was just like, no, why do we have to improve the team? We're good. Okay, we lost Matt Niskanen, but we have Phil Myers who's going to take his next step. Okay, we were missing a third-line center, but now we have Nolan Patrick who's going to take that next step. We could use an extra forward to score, but now we have uh, Oscar Lindblom coming back, and look at what he did before he got sick. So you could make the case that, yeah, that's what happened. Does it absolve Chuck Fletcher of blame? Absolutely not, because there's a lot of players that got signed in the 2020 offseason that would still be useful players today. Like, I've been saying forever, like, okay, they were never in on Alex Petrangelo because he had no interest in coming here, and I believe that. But guys like T.J. Brody, guys like Chris Tannen, like, these are guys that you could have really used and could have still been using here. And, you know, if you had Chris Tanev alongside Ivan Provorov and then Ristolainen beside uh, uh, Travis Sanheim, things may look a lot different. A lot of things would have been different. I, I can't remember the third-line centers that got signed that year, but, you know, we were even asking for, like, guys like an Eric Howla, who I believe is a decent third-line player for the Boston Bruins this year. Like, these were guys that could have really, really helped this team in 2021. And... They just didn't go after them in 2020 for whatever the reason. But then to your point, after they fell on their place and their entire plan went up in flames after last year and they didn't make the playoffs and they probably were hemorrhaging money from just the actual hockey team, I think that then he did get the green light to make a lot of moves. So I don't know. Obviously, we can't prove this like um, 100%, but your reasoning does make a lot of sense. I mean, it seems to be the most... (laughs) rational thing here I've oh you know I, I do think Fletcher's a really smart guy everything that he says seems to be pretty on point with what we're observing which is good you know that's the kind of thing that you want to see from your GM and you know over the last calendar year he's had a lot of very candid um, interviews and quotes and whatnot that, that seem to uh, let me know that he has a pulse of what's going on which is good and you know again the moves this offseason should have theoretically worked <laughs> you know and and for whatever reason you know both the injuries and COVID and and just general lackluster play from some of the uh, you know players that were here that are still here from last year like it, it hasn't worked through and unfortunately it's just too little too late given where the franchise is as a whole you know had he done this in the summer of 2020 you may have been able to salvage something you may have been able to run it back a little better but because you waited so goddamn long now you're at a point where you don't have any good faith from the fans anymore you've burned that bridge completely at this point and you you threw your hat in the ring last year nothing worked you got a bunch of players here that are on big long-term fucking contracts, which are going to be impossible to move. And now you're tasked with picking a direction for the franchise. And, you know, as much as rebuilding is still probably the right thing to do at the end of the day, there's still a part of me that's not convinced that that's the route they take. My guess is they go 
perform some more surgery on this roster in the offseason and try and flip the guys like Konechny and Sanheim and the players that are still here and try and flip them because that's, you know, that's the next logical step if you're trying to put a competitive team on the ice. So I don't know what the hell they do here, but uh, it is, uh, you know, a lot has fallen on Chuck Fletcher's plate, even if it's not directly his fault, whether it's from the last, you know, regime or, or just Dave Scott himself and the state of the organization. So, you know, I, uh, I do not envy Chuck Fletcher at this current time because he has a lot on his plate to try and figure out what the hell to do with this team. Well, as we talked about, he kind of swung too far in the win-now direction. Yeah. Like, you acquired a contract in Ryan Ellis that has five years left at over $6 million. You extended Sean Couturier a year before his con his new contract was due to kick in. Like, you have invested a lot of money into players who aren't exactly young either, like Ellis, Couturier... Hayes, I believe they're all the lo- they're all in the longest contracts and probably three of the five heaviest contracts on the team, and they're all over thirty or will be over thirty within ten months or so. So, and they've all had numerous injuries over the last several months, yeah. which is that much more concerning. So, like you said, the only logical next step here is to try and make more hockey trades. The problem is with that is a lot of the guys that you want to make these hockey trades with have now suffered, you know, value decrease, um, uh, decrease in value. That's the word I'm looking for. Because a guy like Travis Konechny, yeah, maybe 14 months ago, you could make, you could package him with a draft pick or something and get a Patrick Line. But that's not going to happen anymore. Travis Sanheim, like, I think that a lot of teams would, could use him in the NHL, but what are you going to get for a second pair of defensemen? Like, even a guy like um, Morgan Frost, like when I was beating the drum that they should have used him as currency to get a guy like Jean-Gabriel Pajot two years ago, because back then he still had the mystique of, you know, he scored over 100 points twice in, in the juniors and he was still 20 years old and he still had that like blue chip prospect type of mantra tied to him. Now he's up and people are soured on him. Like I... I've heard that they've tried to, tr- and I don't know if this is true because I didn't get it from a direct source, but I've heard it through the grapevine. So take it for what it's worth. Take it with a grain of salt. But I've heard that they tried to swap him one for one for Lost and Kraus, and they said no, the Coyotes. Oof. So, so again, <laughs> who knows if that's true, but, I mean, Ouch. it could stand to reason. But maybe a couple years ago you say, okay, here's Frost in the first-round pick. Give us Jean-Gabriel Pajot. I think they could have worked. So the thing is here is that a lot of these guys who once had value as early as 12, 15 months ago don't have that value anymore. Even a guy like Ivan Provorov, even him, that I still think you could get a haul for him because I think that a lot of people still think highly of him outside of Philadelphia. He's on a good contract. He's young. He showed on two different occasions in two separate seasons that he has the capability to play like, you know, a borderline top 10 defenseman in the NHL when he's not completely thrown to the wolves. But his value isn't as high as it was, you know, 15 months ago. There's no disputing that. And then after that, what do you have? A guy, Guys on expiring contracts like Ristolainen, Braun, Giroux. If you trade those guys, and there's a good possibility that two of those three may be traded, those aren't going to be hockey trades. They're going to be for draft picks and prospects more likely than not. So then what? The one guy that probably still has a good amount of value is Joel Farabee? Are you going to trade Joel Farabee? Like, unless you're packaging him to bring in a Dylan Larkin, I think that would be kind of changing four quarters for a buck because he's one of the few young guys 
who actually has been living up to expectations and seems like someone who's more part of the solution as opposed to part of the problem. You know, it, it's just I I like the idea of trying to make hockey trades and making this team competitive, but based on their where they're at with some older players who have significant term left on their contracts and some younger guys who don't have as much value or nearly as much value as they used to, I'm just kind of hesitant to think that it would result in a competitive team this time next year. Yeah, and, and you know, Travis Konechny's in the boat as well. You know, if you sold on high on him at the end of 1920, you could have brought in a legitimate fucking superstar because Konechny seemed like he was on the rise. Now he's got 16 goals in the last 103 games, whatever the hell it is. Just absolutely fucking pathetic. And he's making $5.5 million for three more years. You know, that's not a trade chip at this point. That's a, a close to an, an anchor of your own. So... I don't know. I don't know what the fuck you do here with this team and trying to make trades and figure it out. Like, hockey trades seem like... If I was a betting man, that's the direction I would assume they go versus tearing it down and rebuilding. But, you know, as you just talked about, they don't have a lot of leverage here in any of their guys. And even Farabee, who's probably their best on-roster trade ship, again, do you trade Farabee for some other random 21-year-old, you know, or 23, 24-year-old? And that doesn't make any fucking sense either, because Farabee's probably the one with the highest ceiling right now. It just doesn't make any sense, as you mentioned, for, you know, four quarters for a buck. So, I don't know. This is, <laughs> the, the hockey trade department here just doesn't seem to be... Uh, Overly great for the Flyers. I think maybe Sanheim could work simply because he's on an expiring contract. You know, he seems to be the only one that has, you know, has recouped some trade value compared to seasons past. But, like, beyond that here, man, making hockey trades is going to be goddamn impossible unless you want to dip into your draft stock, in which case you don't want to do that because these next two drafts are super fucking critical for the future of the organization. So, nothing makes any sense here. And I maintain that the only way that they could possibly salvage this is if they get a 1C who's, you know, no older than 26 years old. And where are you going to find that guy? Because we've seen Saruman get traded, most recently Jack Eichel, and they haven't been anywhere near on it. Fuck, they weren't even in on fucking a guy like J.G. Pajo. And obviously we, I keep coming back to Bill Larkin because I think he's the only guy who possibly fits that bill who could maybe be available but if you're trading for Dylan Larkin put yourself in Iserman's shoes I'm asking for Farabee and York and then what does that solve you yeah. know like you're going to trade your two best young players for Dylan Larkin and I'm just like well is that changing four quarters for a buck but then I think at the other you know avenue and I say but if you keep Farabee and York and you don't add a centerman are you just in the same fucking tailspin that you're in now? So it's like, it's like I said numerous times, it's like there's no clear-cut direction. There's no actual path that seems like the good route to take. I don't think rebuilding is on the table because of the guys that they brought in this summer and the guys that they extended this summer. And those guys are also injury-riddled, so I don't think you could trade them. Like, I think... When we look at guys on this roster who are here for the long haul, you have Couturier, Hayes, Atkinson, Ryan Ellis. I think those are the guys you're not trading, and probably Scott Lawton. So if you're not trading any of those guys, how could you possibly embrace a rebuild? Between the guys you're not trading and the guys that would be open that are just making an obscene amount of money, you're, you don't have any guys worth trading anyway. So... Man, it is just, it is all kinds of ugly. This team is fucked to the core right now. And, uh, I don't know. 
I don't, I don't even know how you go about doing this at this point. You know, you got to deal with guys. I mean, you can hope that Kevin Hayes comes back and, you know, takes the summer to recover and can come back and play somewhat competent hockey again. Because, you know, the three years he's been here, a year and a half of it has been injured or coming back from an injury, which he still sounds like he's not doing very good from. And then you got guys like Ryan Ellis who may only play 40 games a year on a good year. You know, he's not even looking to do that right now. He may play 20 if he plays this year. And even that seems generous at this point. So it doesn't help that, you know, all the, the veterans you're supposed to be relying upon that you brought in over the last few years are injury-riddled messes that are either actively hurting the lineup when they're there or just not there at all. So, I don't know, you know. And that's where, you know, the weight falls on guys like Ivan Provorov. And then everyone's starting on Ivan Provorov now, which doesn't make any goddamn sense, but they're still doing it, you know. It's not Provorov's fault. He's the only fucking competent guy you have in that blue line. And it's a goddamn shame that York is a lefty because you can't even put him with Provorov to try and form a super pair there. Now you just got to deal with the, you know, Provorov with, with one of, you know, Ristolainen or Sam Braun, which, oh, God. Jesus, Lord. This sucks. <laughs> yeah, it does. And, uh... I don't know, maybe Fletcher can shock us this offseason, and, you know, we're we're not even talking about the trade deadline because I still don't know what their plan is. Like, you know, I've echoed numerous times that whenever I've spoken to people inside the organization, it's always make the playoffs this year. That's the goal. But the thing is, is that how long are they going to keep beating that drum? Like, are they still going to be saying that, in February, or are they still going to be saying that at the beginning of March? Like, are they going to take it right down to the deadline and try and add to get into the playoffs? Like, I feel like at a certain point, they'll just have to wave the right flag, the white flag, rather, and accept reality, but I don't know. This deadline is going to be interesting, and the thing is, is with guys like Giroux, guys like Justin Braun, like, I actually think Ristolainen, they're going to find a way to keep him. I just, I get the feeling, like, that's what the, the route they're going to go down because they gave up a lot to get him, and he has worked well in the role that they brought him in to play for. Um, so I don't know. I think Braun and Giroux could get you decent hauls, but uh, besides that, I think it may just they'll try and re- lock and load and reload in the summer. Flyers are currently nine points out of the second wild card spot, and Boston still has two games in hand on that. So not looking great for... I mean, we're not even halfway through the season yet. And they're, you know, double-digit points out of a playoff spot. That's actually insane to think about. Because, you know, th- that uphill battle is is damn near impossible to climb. And even if they were to come together and get on a run and look like the team from the first seven games of the season, I mean, it's almost impossible for them to climb back into a playoff spot at this point just because the hole they dug is so goddamn deep. So... Yeah, I, I don't know. We'll have to see. You know, March, the end of March is a long time away. It would be just like the Flyers to go on a run now and get back within like three or four points of a playoff spot and then not trade oh, anybody not at the deadline. That. <laughs> because that's that's pretty on brand for what they would do. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't think Ristolainen is going in either. I, I'm totally not convinced he gets traded just because of what they gave up to get him. I do think they see him as a pillar moving forward. But, you know, Braun would get you a haul, but do you trade Braun at this point? Because he's the guy who's basically the glue that holds his fucking defense together. And, uh, you know, Giroux, even though it makes the most sense to trade him, do they have the balls to pull the trigger on that one? And I'm not convinced of that either. So this could be a really quiet trade deadline if they get cold feet when it comes to moving some of their big stars. Yeah, you have a good point. It's going to be interesting nonetheless. Like, no matter which avenue they go down, it's going to be interesting and we're going to have a lot to talk about. I just, I hope that, 
the hockey ops finds a way to do what's right, and what's right is to probably move on from at least Giroux, maybe a Broussard, if anyone would want to take a fucking Keith Yandel, that'd be great. Like, even a Martin Jones at this point. Like, maybe fucking say, hey, Edmonton, he's better than whatever bags of shit you're trotting out there every game. But, uh, I mean, you know, if you dangle any of these guys, I think you could get something decent and then save, like, the hockey-type trades for the summer. Yep. I would assume that's what happens, but, uh, you know, we shall see. Use the word interesting. I think it's a good word to describe the Flyers in general these days. It's interesting. <laughs> yeah, to put it lightly. Yeah. I'm being very uh, <laughs> liberal in my description. <laughs> well, Flyers play Boston tonight. I assume that game is taking place because we haven't heard anything otherwise. Uh, they got the Rangers on Saturday. I will be at the Phantoms, so I don't have to subject myself to that shit. And then they play the Islanders in Detroit in a back-to-back on Monday, Tuesday next week. So, uh, you know, it's going to be uh, difficult. Hopefully those two games next week are easier, though Detroit, I believe, is still ahead of them in the standings. I can't wait to watch Mo Sider tear this team apart. But, uh, you know, we'll see. Uh, you know, <laughs> I don't even know. What the fuck more can I say at this point about this stupid team? But, uh... We'll, uh, we'll call it a day here. Um, what is it, Thursday? Wednesday? Wednesday? Thursday, Jesus. Uh, Thursday. So, tomorrow with Freakin' Flyer. I believe we're back on Sunday. Um, and then the schedule picks back up uh, as usual next week. So, at Dan the Flyer Fan, at Brotherly Puck, at Brotherly underscore pod, at Heart Countdown underscore, but, you know, he doesn't win games anymore, so who the fuck cares? And, uh, <laughs> yeah, Anthony, where can people find you on Twitter? You can find me at AidenMarker25. All right, everybody. Until next time, goodbye and good nights.